Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, continuing on with the next episode of uh, Cary Grant, uh, Archibald Leach. Uh, quote from Cary Grant, I had quite a run of stage successes, both in New York and on tour. After I thought a visit to Hollywood would be quite an idea, and I made the trip by car all the way from New York. In the spring of 1927, desperate for money, Archie swallowed his pride and called upon old friend Ori Kelly, to whom he had not spoken to for two years, and who had during that time became a highly sought-after Broadway set and costume designer. Ori Kelly was happy to hear from him, but was still not willing to take him back. Instead, he agreed to pay for a small studio apartment for Archie on East 80th Street in the Yorkville section of Manhattan. This new neighborhood felt strange to Archie. It seemed light years from Times Square, with a huge influx of German immigrants and many crowded restaurants that specialized in the country's heaviest cuisine. He must prefer the more familiar show business surroundings of Rudley's, the theatrical bar and grill on 41st and Broadway, where he now is a familiar face, nicknamed Kangaroo by fellow, fellow drinking buddies because of his accent and funny walk. Among them were some of the biggest up-and-coming names in the show business, including a screenwriter, Preston Sturgis, playwrights, Moss Hart, and Edward Cordero, Broadway song and dance man, George Murray, and a stage actor with the unusual name of Humphrey Bogart. Although Archie became extremely popular among the heady crowd that was granted the privilege of sitting in their large, Ablanes table, he felt a bit intimidated and tended to say little, according to Cordro. He was never a very open fellow, but he was uh, in earnest. We all did like him. Ori Kelly was also part of the elite gay Broadway social scene. And at a party one night, producer Renegold Hammerstein, the younger brother of Oscar Hammerstein II, grandson of the legendary Broadway Impresno, told him that he was casting his big fall musical, Golden Dawn. Ori Kelly replied that he ought to check it out, Archie Leach, an actor. He thought he would be perfect for it. The next day, Reggie set up an appointment for Archie, and during the audition developed an immediate and intense crush on him. Archie, who later once called on Reggie as a happy acquaintance, nevertheless began a romantic relationship with the young producer. They were seen together at many of the best nightclubs in town, and before long, Reggie told Archie the role of Golden Dawn was his. He also convinced his uncle, Arthur Hammerstein, now in charge of the theatrical dynasty's business end, to sign Archie to a one-year personal management contract to run through the 1927-28 theatrical season. The agreement gave the Hammerstein organization exclusive rights to Archie services at a starting salary of $75 a week, renewable through 1933, at preset increases to $800 a week. Archie eagerly signed on the dotted line, and that fall the show opened on Broadway. Golden Dawn is a story of a white goddess who rules an African tribe, a flimsy premise that allowed for extravagant sets and numerous musical numbers with touches of ministry and lots of jazzy pop and a finale notable for 
featuring mainstream Broadway's first topless chorus line in history. Its main attraction, besides the naked bodies of its beautiful Corines, was the appearance of the Metropolitan Opera star, Louise Hunter. The show opened on November 30, 1927, to largely negative reviews, the most memorable coming from the New York Daily Mirror's Walter Winchell, who dubbed it the Golden Yawn, and it quickly closed. Archie, who was cast in a secondary role in a youthful Australian POW with one song and a single line of dialogue, was, ironically, the only person who benefited from Golden Dawn. His appearance, brief as it was, proved good enough to get him signed by Billy Square, Square Deal Grandy, a young, hustling William Morris agent. Grady was convinced that Archie could be a huge star, and he worked closely with the Hammersteins, who still had exclusive rights to Archie's services on Broadway. To get him into Polly, slated for Broadway years later, Polly, a musical adaptation of the 1917 stage comedy, Polly with a Past, starred British music hall sensation June Howard Tripp, vaudevillian Fred Allen, and comedian Inez Courtney. Archie was cast as a society playboy opposite Howard Tripp, a poor girl masquerading with a rich one. Unfortunately, June took an instant dislike to Archie, and despite or perhaps because of his strong out-of-town reviews, she complained to the producers that he was unsuited to play opposite her. His British working-class accent, she said, made a mockery of his rich playboy character. And besides not being able to act, in her opinion, he also could neither dance nor sing. To appease their star, the producers reluctantly fired Archie, although he was still in the show when it had its out-of-town tryouts in Philadelphia, where the great Florence Ziegfeld happened to see him in it and decided he wanted him to star in the national tour of his Broadway hit Rosalie. Ziegfeld's world-famous follies had by now taken up permanent residency in the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street. Built shortly after the turn of the century by Oscar Hammerstein's chief competitors, the Claw and Erlington Broadway Agency. By 1910, Mark Claw and Abraham Evinger produced professional differences with the Hammersteins had escalated to a personal feud, which would eventually help bring down the Hammerstein Empire. The Hammersteins hated Ziegfeld, who was firmly in the Claw and Erlinger camp, believing he had stolen much of the original of Hammerstein's concept of style, flash, and glitter for his follies. When Ziegfeld offered Archie the romantic lead in the prestigious touring company as one of the biggest hits, Ziegfeld thought he would have no problem signing him. Although Archie's contract with the Hammerstein stilled a few months on it, he was sure his appearance in two consecutive flops would, if anything, give them the excuse they needed to get rid of him and out of the deal before it officially ended. What neither Ziegfeld nor Archie counted on was the emergence into the mix of the Schubert organization, headed by J.J. and his brother Lee. Having heard of Ziegfeld's interest in Archie, they quietly brought out the remainder of his contract, bought out the remainder of his contract from the cash-hungry Hammersteins, who were willing to sell Archie to the Schuberts to present 
to prevent the hated Ziegfeld from getting him or getting their hands on him. All this backdoor dealing infuriated Archie, who resented being a pawn in a power game in which he held no financial advantage, and that, to his thinking, cost him his chance to break into the big time as a star of the already hugely successful Rosalie. The Schuberts immediately cast Archie opposite Jeanette MacDonald in their new musical farce, Boom Boom, scheduled to open in their wondrous new Broadway casino theater on January 28, 1929. Archie's role was a small but important one that included a little singing and a lot of what he did best, looking good. Boom Boom opened to so-so reviews, with most of the praise going to Jeanette MacDonald, whose costumes happened to be designed by Ori Cully. During the run of the show, Archie and Ori Cully rekindled their romantic relationship. But if Archie had any hope of making a permanent go of it, it ended when Ori Cully took a permanent job in St. Louis to design costumes for the city's municipal opera company. Boom Boom closed after 72 performances, another instantly forgettable star vehicle. It did, however, bring both McDonald and Archie overtures from the Paramount Public's film studios. Oscar Salen, Paramount's leading New York-based talent scout, had caught a performance of Boom Boom and thought McDonald might do well in films opposite Paramount's newly signed French cabaret star, Maurice Chevalier. He also liked Archie's stage presence and decided to invite them both to take a screen test in the studio's Astoria headquarters. Paramount was among the last of the, of the majors to keep a working base on the East Coast. At the insistence of Adolf Zucker, who believed the broad, who believed the Broadway was a fertile pool for new talent and an important cultural base from which to maintain his film studio level of sophistication. Archie and Jeanette each spent an afternoon before the cameras in Queens, but either was offered a Hollywood contract. Although McDonald did receive more, a more favorable rating, the unanimous verdict on Archie was that his 17 and a half inch neck was way too thick and his long legs way too bowed and his handsome face too pudgy. Nowhere in Archie's evaluation is there any mention of his acting ability. The stock market crash of 1929 hit the New York theater in industry particularly hard, sending almost every working actor to the unemployment lines. Suddenly, Archie's long-term contract with the Schuberts, which he had at first so resented, became his lifeline. For the next three years, he dutifully appeared in a number of their cookie-cutter shows, grateful for the steady employment. He spent as little time as possible and, and saved whatever and wherever he could, Apparently, nowhere during the period is there more evidence of this involvement in any personal relationship with either a man or a woman. He was young, single, well-to-do, extremely popular, and, apparently, utterly alone. Years later, reflecting on these times, Grant noted, without the ability to fully love or to be loved, so many of us used the acquisition of money to provide self-esteem and happiness. In other words, money had become the only tangible measurement Archie had to assess his self-worth, and performing was the way to attain both. Whenever he received less than a rave notice or a show closed early, 
His fears of a return to poverty quickly reinforced themselves, along with an acknowledgement dip in his self-esteem. One time during a particularly difficult period, he happened to run into Fred Allen, who had befriended him and they appeared together in Polly. Archie poured his heart out to Allen, who, by the way of response, invited Archie to accompany him to the observation tower atop the Woolworth building in Lower Manhattan. It was a terribly rainy day, and the city was blanketed with a thick gray fog. Allen told Archie to look out as far as he could see, which was not very far. Nevertheless, Allen said, there surely was a whole wide world out there. Just because they couldn't see it at that moment didn't mean that it didn't exist. Faith, he told Archie, was the belief in the existence of the world and of one's place in the world. The, the individual may, may be small and relatively unimportant by comparison, but nevertheless, he existed, and his importance was not always measurable by immediate circumstances or surroundings. Archie, who was not much of a spiritual or intellectual contemplator, put a great deal of value on Allen's words and thanked him profusely for taking the time to try to explain his way of looking at life. Allen's philosophy was that one of the most sens- sensible thing that he'd ever heard. He was living in a fog, and fog sooner or later did lift. If that wasn't exactly what Allen meant for Archie, it was close enough. He would remember Allen's words for years to come, and whenever he got depressed, he would thank himself as being engulfed by a metaphysical fog. He would work his way out of it by having the faith that it would eventually pass. Just because he wasn't happy at the moment didn't mean he never would be. That afternoon with Fred Allen became an important first step in Archie's journey of self-discovery, one that would take a lifetime to complete. Archie's next Schubert show was A Wonderful Night, a reworking of Johann Strauss's Die Federals. The show received mixed reviews and managed only 125 performances before it closed in February of 1930. This latest failure forced the Schuberts to pare down their stable of contract players. They wanted to keep Archie, but only if he would agree to work that summer in their open-air municipal opera inn of all places St. Louis. Archie was delighted. This was the excuse he needed to rejoin his former lover, Ori Cully. He was so happy, he brought himself a brand new bright yellow Packard to make the drive to the Midwest. Once there, he and Ori Kelly quickly rekindled their relationship. And while the Schuberts had arranged for Archie to have his own hotel, he spent most evenings that summer with Ori Kelly in in their apartment. When the season ended, Archie convinced Kelly to come back to New York City with him, where they moved into a new studio apartment bought by a nearby speakeasy. On nights when neither of them were working, they tended to bar together. That fall, Bill Grady, Archie's agent, got the Schuberts to agree to loan him to producer Bill Freelander, who was looking for a male lead star in opposite of Frey Ray and Nicky, a new play headed for Broadway written by Ray's husband, Hollywood screenwriter John Monk Saunders. Freelander had commissioned Saunders to write a show after he won an Academy Award for his work in 1928 in the blockbuster film Wings. Saunders agreed on the condition that 
Freelander's cast, Ray was the lead. He then took one of his own magazine serials, The Last Flight, and adapted it to stage. Nicky, as it was retitled, told the romantic and adventures of three American soldiers in Paris during World War I. To custom fit the vehicle for Ray, Saunders changed one of the three leading male characters to a woman and turned it into a love triangle. Freelander then enlisted the services of Phil Sharig, an up-and-coming Broadway composer, another client of Grady's, to turn it into a musical complete with lavish production numbers and a chorus line of leggy dancing girls. Archie was cast as Carrie Lachlan, one of the two soldiers competing for the love of Nicky. The role paid him 375 a week, a $75 cut from a Schubert guaranteed salary. The difference held back by the Schuberts as their fee for allowing the loan out. If the show ran longer than five weeks, Archie's salary was to increase to 500 a week, with the Schuberts cut to be made up by Freelander. Unfortunately, Fricky, uh, Nicky did not get that far, closing in November of 1931 after only 39 performances. At the final night party held at the Waldorf Astoria, Archie confided in Arlene Meyer Schelsneck, daughter of legendary Holly, Hollywood mogul Louis B. Mayer, and his friend Ray Frey and her husband, that he loved Ray and was seriously thinking of following her to Hollywood just to be near her. It was an odd comment to a friendly but total stranger that foreshadowed the chase infatuations of bizarre confessionals the actor was to form and make with women the rest of his stage career and film career. As a brief run it had, Nicky did provide a key review that changed the course of Archie. In his influential New York Daily News show's business column, Ed Sullivan singled out the actor's performance predicting a big future in movies for the young lad from England. The mention was enough to get him a recall from one of Paramount's Astoria Studios casting directors for a brief appearance as a sailor in Singapore Sioux, a 10-minute short the studio was making to introduce Anna Chang, their newest acquisition. Meanwhile, Ori Kelly had received an invitation from Jack Warner to come to Hollywood and work as a contract costume designer for the studio. It was the the big break that he had been waiting for, and he told Archie about it. Archie promised that as soon as he finished Singapore Sioux, he would join him in L.A. The timing could not have been better. Nicky completed Archie's contractual obligation with the Schuberts, whose bad runs of flops had forced them into receivership and because of it were in no position to enhance and enforce their option to re-sign him or anyone else for that matter. Upon completing his first one-day shoot in Singapore Sioux and just short of his 28th birthday, Archie packed up his belongings, arranged for the sale of the bar, and said goodbye to his few friends. One of them was composer Phil Charing, who had wanted to head west and volunteered to make the drive with him. Another was early mentor, Gene Darmfoyle, with whom he had took one of his last lunches at the Algonquin, when she could not get him to change his mind and stay in New York City to to pursue what she believed was a promising stage career. She cautioned him not to get caught up in the false glamour of Hollywood and asked him to promise 
sooner or later to return to the pure world of theater in New York City. That made him laugh. The next day, Archie and Phil slipped in the front seats of the yellow Packard. Archie kicked over the engine, pressed down the accelerator, and pointed the front wheels to the direction of his future. Archie and Phil arrived in Hollywood the third week of January 1932 and took up nominal residence together in a small courtyard apartment in Sweezer, just north of Melrose Avenue, that Ori Kelly had helped them secure. One of the so-called DeMille Flats Paramount had built in the early 1920s to house its employees. Archie's next order of business was to make an appointment with the casting people at Paramount who, to Azov Zucker's directive, were eagerly awaiting his arrival. With good reason, the studio was in need of a new leading man to, re- to renovate its continuing box office slump that had begun even before the Depression. With the sudden early death in 1926 of its biggest male silent movie star, Rudolph Valentino, Valentino's silent shriek movies made him a sensation, and his death left a gaping hole in Paramount's already slim roster of bankable leading men. Zucker, nicknamed Creepy and Creep Jesus by his employees for his self-described visionary abilities in picking future stars, had, besides discovering Valentino, taken all the credit for German sensation Marlene Dietrich, Paramount's answer to MGM's Greta Garbo, who had become an overnight star following her appearance in Joseph von Sternberg's The Blue Angel, and he gave the director who had actually discovered Dietrich none. His only other big box office male lead, Gary Cooper, had skyrocketed in popularity following his appearance opposite Dietrich in Steinberg's follow-up to The Blue Angel, Morocco, in 1930 but was considered by Zucker to be quite quirky and rebellious for the long run. Cooper, born of British immigrant parents, had been discovered by Clara Bow, who helped launch the tall, lanky, handsome actor to the top ranks of Hollywood's leading men. Morocco had indeed captivated him and the superstar stratosphere, but the experience of working with Steinberg, who was hopelessly in love with Dietrich, and all but ignored him during shooting, left him angry and frustrated. He retaliated first by having an affair with his co-star and then taking a year-long vacation in Africa, where he sent word that the studio, to the studio that he was considering permanently retiring from the movie business. Zucker needed to find another actor to challenge Cooper's position in the studio's top male, and he thought handsome Broadway actor Archibald Leach might just be the one to do it. Although Paramount was making what many regarded at the time the best Hollywood movies, uh, MGM was generally considered more glamorous because of its luxurious roster of players who so perfectly idealized and reflected the popular cultural icons of the time. The Teddy Roosevelt toughness of Clark Gable, the suaveness of lost generation sensitivity of John Gilbert, the roaring, roaring 20s sheen of Norma Shearer, and the first lady of the screen, who also appeared to be married to studio-leading Irving Thalberg, and the exotic old-world majesty and mystery of Greta Garbo, 
the woman the studio cannily referred to as the European. And while MGM and Warner Brothers had survived the industry's shift from silent film to talkies with no minimal disruption, sound had plunged Paramount into financial disarray and eventual bankruptcy, primarily due to the reluctance of its founders, Zucker and Jesse Lasky, general manager Benjamin Purcell, Schulberg, and the head of production, Walter Wanger, to switch quickly enough to talkies. Worse for the studio, the onset of sound movies happened to be approximately the same time in 1929 when the stock market crashed. Bank money quickly dried up, which made it more difficult for the, the lagging studio to bolster its inventory of expensive actors with those of not only looked out right but sounded good as well. Lasky eagerly anticipated the arrival of Archibald Leach after word had come to him out of New York via Singamore Sioux director Casey Robinson that the studio ought to, to lock up the actor immediately. Before MGM got to look at him, Zucker ordered Schulberg to do whatever was necessary to sign him. Schulberg invited director Marion Gehrig, his wife, and Archie to dinner at home an honor usually reserved for the studio's biggest stars. Over coffee, Gehrig told Archie and Schulberg happened to be a screenwriting test for his wife the very next day. At that point, Schulberg butted in, put an arm around Archie, and if he had had a sudden revelation, said, why do you make it with her, Archie? Archie knew he had tested well when the next day Schulberg called him into his office and asked him to think about changing his name to something that sounded a bit more American, something like, say, Gary Cooper. That night, Archie had dinner with Faye Ray and her husband, John Saunders, during which Ray told Archie that if she was about to sign with RKO to star as the unrequited love object of a giant ape in Marion C. Cooper's forthcoming King Kong, the subject of Archie's impending name change then came up again. He asked her if she had any suggestions, and without hesitating, she smiled and said, he could see use Carrie Lockwood, the character he played in Nikki, the next day. Archie brought it back to Schulberg, who loved the first part because it rhymed with Gary, but was less satisfied with Lockwood. For one thing, the studio had already con con had a contract player with that last name. For another, short last names were better because they showed up larger on the marquee and were easier for the public to remember. He, had, he handed Archie a list of names, and he had had the, the studio publicly department compile and told him to pick one. Archie scanned the list and, as a matter of fact, chose Grant. I like it, Schulberg said. Let's go ahead with that one. Archie smiled and said nothing. The next day, Schulberg sent Bill Gadby, Archie's agent, a contract for the services of Paramount's newest acquisition, Cary Grant. <laughs>